Hyper Wellbeing, a podcast about the startups, technologies, and people driving a brand new healthcare industry. Healthcare for healthy people. Consumer and data-driven, emerging as devices, apps, mobile, biology, health, and wellness converge. Continuous prediction, prevention, and optimization paradigm. And now, over to your host, D.S. Driver. Hello, and welcome once again to the Hyper Wellbeing Podcast. On today's show, now the sixth in the series, we have Tommy Wood. Dr. Tommy Wood is a research assistant professor at the University of Washington and chief scientific officer of Nourish Balance Thrive, an online-based company using advanced biochemical testing to optimize health in athletes and high performers. Based on their accumulated data, the team are now using machine learning to rapidly and reliably predict both common and complex health problems using easily and cheaply available data. Tommy has a bachelor's degree in biochemistry from the University of Cambridge, a medical degree from the University of Oxford, and a PhD in physiology and neuroscience from the University of Oslo. He's also president-elect of physicians for ancestral health and on the Scientific Advisory Board of Hintza Performance. Hello, and welcome to the Hyper Wellbeing Podcast, Tommy. Oh, thanks for having me. Tommy, let's just jump in here. Uh, you still look young. Uh, you've got a fantastic resume, or as uh, British would say, I think, uh, curriculum vitae. Where is the motivation coming from? What's your driving force? What's the, the mission you're on? I guess I, I, I do have one, or I, I have two that, that I work on sort of alternatively on essentially a daily basis the the first being that uh, i believe that most chronic disease that we face today is uh largely a result of our environment and therefore we ultimately have control over it because that's pretty much what humans do that we are where we are today because we can control our environment that that's one aspect of of what i do and the other the other aspect is neonatal neuroprotection which is completely separate although sort of coming together in 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 multiple multiple ways but that's essentially um babies who are born with some kind of brain injury born prematurely um and then trying to find ways to treat that and i think that those require um fundamentally different approaches because it's something that we ultimately have uh some control over we may be able to prevent many many years in the future you know most chronic diseases the other one is these things just happen and largely at least currently they're out of our control and therefore we may need more uh, intensive therapeutic applications uh, more um, you know intensive modern medicine which is something that we're working on whereas some of those you know metabolic and chronic diseases that i think we'll talk about a lot today i, I think they're more in personal control may not even need a healthcare system if we knew uh, how to look after ourselves properly so those are the two I guess, missions and things that, that I like to work on. And I guess uh, a lot of it comes from the fact that um, when I was growing up, you, meant, you mentioned my CV, when I was growing up, it was sort of instilled in me by, by my parents who are both academics that um, it's important to get a good education. And I, I, I do believe in that. And I've been lucky to, to be uh, educated in some of the best institutions in the world. Uh, but then also that work can be fun and it's entirely up to you. So um, nothing was ever micromanaged. Nobody ever asked me if I did my homework. I just you know, had to crack on and do it myself. And then you know that you get out what you're willing to put in. So where I am uh, today is largely uh, because I really enjoy what I do. 
I really enjoy talking to people who share common interests with me. Um, and often, you know, the the connections and things that I've made have, have involved me offering any help or information I might have, you know, with no real goal in terms of reciprocation. You know, there's always somebody who is interesting to t- interested in talking to you. And maybe, you know, I certainly don't pretend to know everything, but maybe I, I know something I can be helpful with. And I'm willing, you know, willing to give your time, willing to give your your thoughts and input. And then eventually, you know, some great stuff can happen down the line. And that's largely where I've, um, largely what's resulted in me being where I am today. I greatly appreciate you take that attitude, and I did actually pick up on it. We've never spoke before, but I've heard a, quite a few podcasts now with yourself on it, and I'd picked up on the impression that you're what we'll term open. We'll call it social. You make yourself <laughs> available when you can, but I also pick up that you're very <laughs> pressed on time. Yeah, that does that does uh, that does happen. Um, I guess it's a a, a downside of. I I guess it's you know if you're good at what you do and I, I do like to think that that I am most of the time I won't pretend that it's a it's a, a uniform thing but then you know uh, particularly as you become involved in more things or become more senior in various um, areas then then uh, more people want more of your time and then it becomes uh, you you have to I I now have to be a bit more um, I guess selective than I was maybe a few years ago but. It's it's still very important to me to, to be as open and offer as much of my time as I can because you never know what's going to come out of it. Well, I appreciate getting, getting a piece of Tommy, and I hope <laughs> the, 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 the good karma uh, comes around. I saw that you also added another hat earlier this year as research scientist at the Institute for Human and Machine Cognition. Could you share a touch about the IMHC and uh, what you're doing there? Sure. So the uh, IHMC is... Uh, a non-profit uh, research organization based in Florida. And the the founder and CEO is a guy called Ken Ford, who's probably one of the most decorated scientists that the US has to offer. He was um, the White House scientific advisor uh, for George Bush. He has won uh, various medals from the uh, National Science Foundation, which, ru- which runs the funding for, for most of the non-biomedical research in the US and uh, NASA, and is incredibly well connected and incredibly intelligent, and just this um, fabulous and fascinating human being. And through through some mutual friends, uh, Chris Kelly mainly uh, mainly Chris Kelly, and I think uh, he got introduced uh, to Ken through Rob Wolf. In the, so everybody here is in the sort of or has hung out in the sort of low carbon keto areas at one one time or another and chris introduced me to ken and ken without really knowing who i was uh agreed to jump on a call with me and talk about some of my career options so this was a few years ago when i was finishing my phd and i was moving to the us and i wasn't really sure whether i should do a postdoc keep working in a lab you know keep developing the academic side of my career or you know um just dive straight in and work full-time with nourish balance thrive which is the company uh where i work um you know, optimizing health and performance in, in, in various people. And, you know, so Ken was willing to give me half an hour of his time to, to give me some thoughts, which I, I really appreciated um, and was actually very influential in, in what's sort of happened with me so far. And we've been communicating regularly uh, since. We have lots of common interests in, in health and performance. And um, I've 
been to the IHMC to take part in small meetings, sort of brainstorming about human training and performance. And that's a lot of what they do is is looking at the performance of humans in extreme environments. So they have a lot of military contracts. They do a lot of work with NASA and astronauts. Um, and when I finished my postdoc, uh, Ken invited me to join as, as a visiting scientist, which means that I can use their resources to do some of my own research in, in health and performance, which is something that I'm, I'm very interested in. Uh, but then I can also potentially um, take part in some of the research that they're doing. And my own, I researched my PhD, my, my postdoc, and now um, I'm just starting as a, as a professor at the University of Washington, um, looking at hypoxic brain injury, largely. And obviously, hypoxia or low oxygen is something that a lot of those people uh, performing in extreme environments, you know, get exposed to. So pilots, astronauts, you know, the, there's many times they might be exposed to low levels of oxygen, which affects how your brain functions. So they're, they're doing more research on that. And, and hopefully some of my, uh, my expertise can, can be used there. So um, it's uh, a great honor to be part of their uh, incredible team. They have one of the best podcasts, I think, out there, STEM Talk, um, and um, just excited about what we can do in the future. Yeah, I, I love STEM Talk and I agree with you. It's a great podcast and also there are videos on YouTube. You mentioned yeah. performance. If I quote you online, you, you state the, you, a core interest of yours is easily accessible methods with which to track human health, performance and longevity. So if we can focus there for a bit, can you give some indication what these methods are across health, performance and longevity? Uh, absolutely. So there's a big focus uh, on on this now, and coming from two two different directions, I, I guess there's the the people who want to optimize uh, health and performance themselves, which is a lot of the people that that you and I interact with, and maybe a lot of the people listening to this. And then there's uh, research efforts and uh, efforts in the medical community to try and reduce the process of aging and a lot of the um research focusing now suggests that uh long-term health is going to be um or, or sustaining long-term health is basically going to be due to the process of preventing or slowing down the processes that contribute to, to aging and then the question becomes well how do we measure aging and and, and this is also very, uh, very relevant to, to long-term health and performance because, you know, particularly if you want to perform at a given thing for a long period of time, and that could be cognitively at work, it could be um, in a sport that you participate in, it could be um, in your family life, just being old enough to play with your grandkids or your great-grandkids, you know, that, that could be your performance goal. And, and all of that is going to come down to uh, ensuring that we're having the right balance of growth repair um those that's that's where a lot of the the target of of aging or anti-aging medicine is nowadays and so if we're thinking about measuring these processes there are a number of different ways we can do that so uh telomere testing people have heard of which is very unreliable and usually unnecessary um i think uh, a lot more uh, interesting than that is going to be looking at epigenetic modifications of dna uh, which is increasingly well described in the literature but uh, if you want to do it on yourself it's going to cost you several thousand dollars and it's, you're gonna to have to wait several weeks for the test to come back myself and the people that i work with at nourish balance thrive and dr brian walsh um, we wholeheartedly believe that you can get a lot of data um, 
and most of what you need from subjective quality of life and simple blood tests. And we've been building machine learning models to predict states that affect athletic performance uh, from subjective questionnaires. So if I ask you about your sleep and your sex life and whether you feel socially isolated or you know you enjoy your job, um, if if we ask you those questions on a scale of one to five and we you know we feed the, those numbers into a machine learning model, I can predict if you have say prediabetes based on your subjective quality of life. And that's not necessarily that surprising if you know some of the things that can cause prediabetes and i think that's something that we'll we'll talk about as well um so so you know i can predict some of these uh uh the early stages of chronic disease just by asking about your quality of life i don't need to do a fancy test um and then you know if we sort of increase if we go up a step um you know maybe you can do a 50 dollars blood test you know something that anybody can get from their doctor or can you know in the u.s now you can order it yourself can we then extract more data from that? Is there is there something there? Is there some underlying signature of, say, aging, if, if that's where we're going to focus, um, that, that we can extract from that data? And, and we do have some machine learning models, again, to, to, you know, we ask the algorithm, you know, if we give you these previous 100,000 blood tests and we tell you um, the age of the people they're associated with, if I, if I then give you this new blood test, how old do these blood test results look? So then we have a, a model to predict chronological age. Uh, sorry, to predict biological age rather than chronological age, your, your age in years. And other people are doing this. Um, there's a group called Aging.ai based out of a company called Insilico Medicine, uh, at Johns Hopkins. And they um, have used... Uh, they they have access to data sets just like we do. Uh, we have uh, similar outputs. We use different algorithms to get what to to get our answer. Um, the reason why I like our approach and Chris has been building machine learning models that are explainable. So the the important thing is, you know, great. So you get an output. It tells you what your biological age is. What do you then do about it? And uh, the problem with a lot of machine learning algorithms is they're a black box. So you don't know why the algorithm thinks what it does. So we've been developing explainable machine learning models so that um, I get an output that says, all right, so your uh, chronological age, your biological age is 10 years older than your chronological age, right? So maybe um, I'm 34, maybe I do my blood test and it says I'm 44, right? I want to know why that is. And so now we can get that output out and we can see there are some things that are in there that then I know how to manipulate. So if you have elevated uh, fasting blood glucose or triglycerides or um, there's a number of metrics with your red blood cells that are very important, the mean corpuscular volume. So the average size of your red blood cells tells you something about nutrients, uh, as does the red cell distribution width, how, how variable your red blood cell size is. And we know these things correlate very closely with mortality as well. So then I can think of interventions, be they nutritional or other lifestyle things, that I can then manipulate uh, those specific markers. And if they come down, then hopefully my predicted age comes down. The caveat is... If I do something to bring down my predicted age or my uh, biological age, does that mean that I will actually live longer? And the answer is we don't know yet. Uh, so hopefully, you know, we found something that allows us to uh, personalize an intervention um, that looks at the aging process in, in individual people using very easily and cheaply available data. However, if that then results in them living longer, uh, we just have to 
you have to wait and find out and hopefully run some studies and see whether it works out that way. But I'd be surprised if it didn't. And if it's not lifespan, it's certainly going to be health span, Tommy. Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree. There's uh you know, there's there's still a debate in terms of how long the human can actually live. Um, many people think that, you know, we're probably gonna top out somewhere in the hundred and twenty years old, somewhere around there. But in reality, most people don't necessarily want to live longer. They just don't, you know, they want to have more uh, life in their years rather than years in their life. You want a complete so, systems failure right then instead of <laughs> lots of bugs and yeah. patches along the way, you know, a rectangularization of the mortality curve. Exactly. The uh, I, I like Mark Sisson's version of it, which is live long, drop dead. That's essentially what <laughs> Yeah, that's perfect. I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to any of my previous five guests in this podcast, Tommy. Uh, no, I haven't. I'm, I'm afraid, but I am excited uh, to to listen to those. It's been a. Um, I actually haven't listened to any podcasts the last few months just because I've been running around and traveling and stuff. So I'm. It will definitely be high on my list once I get back into my podcast listing in the next couple of weeks. There's some amazing uh, overlap with a lot of what you said. So uh, I'm uh, wondering which specific part I should pick up upon. I'll pick up critically. At first, I ran the, well, I'll pick up on the more negative one, which was I ran the bloodcalculator.com, which you've been involved in, and and we'll speak about that later. But in terms of the biological age score, which I know is not sort of the main feature, it said I was 65, if I remember, something of that order. I'm 42. And then my girlfriend, uh-huh. who's 23, did it, and she had something like 60 years old. That was about, I can't remember, but it was, it, it was quite some time ago. So hopefully that's moved along. But I also used yeah. the Insilico Medicine one, which required a lot more yeah. blood markers. And it wasn't actually any better. So I thought, okay, it's nice people are applying AI <laughs> to blood chemistry. And I'm sure those models will get better. I'm very confident of that. But at the moment, and hey, we're, we're, we're at a very nascent stage, it was my conclusion. But the, uh, the in silico medicine, the aging.ai ver- aging. version and the blood calculator version tended to agree or were, were fairly close in their prediction? They were, oh, no, 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 Tommy, don't depress me. They were fairly close in their prediction. It wasn't like wildly, it wasn't like an order of a decade. And I tell you, Tommy, I'm looking good. I'm feeling good. I'm very fit. So I'm hoping something is not quite right more in the AI and the data and the actual physiological end here. Yeah, so... I mean, th- this is a a big part of 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 what we're trying to figure out, and and the the important thing is that uh, these processes are very uh, objective, and yes, so a lot of the data that's publicly available. Um, so we have some of our own data from um, we have a, a few thousand athletes worth of data, which which are part of the models, and then there's some some publicly available data that comes from. Um, just average average people um then the question is should i be comparing um the blood test from somebody who's fit and active and healthy to um a more uh standard uh i guess av- average population who, who are maybe not as as fit and healthy and, and the answer is right now we don't know so there's um something that we see very commonly particularly in uh chronic uh high high volume endurance athletes uh they're 
uh, predicted age is usually one or two decades older than they actually are. So now the question becomes, does high volume endurance exercise cause premature or accelerated aging? Uh, which is certainly possible in in some tissues. So we know it's probably pretty good for the heart, unless we're you know go, taking it too far, and, and people obviously do that. But are there other aspects of uh, physiology, other organs in the body that are maybe being pushed too hard uh, by the amount of exercise uh, the people are doing, and then that's that's being picked up on on the uh, the algorithms, uh, uh, seeing that in the blood tests, and and I think that's almost going to be that's almost certainly going to be part of it as well, and so. There's there's definitely um, there's definitely a lot to be teased out. A lot of our um, models, so we can predict various nutrient deficiencies, toxic exposures, hormone issues, and you know the 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 sicker you are, basically the more things you have predicted wrong with you. But that doesn't necessarily mean that those are all current issues in you. It just means that there's this underlying flavor of sick person that you can see from see from a blood test that actually has has very little to, to do with um, the the individual numbers themselves you couldn't see a human couldn't certainly couldn't see that pattern so um it's important for us not to just say well i don't agree with this result therefore there must be something wrong with the algorithm right there, there's there's something underlying there um we just need to figure out exactly what it yeah, is yeah can you uh, emphasize that part that um the human could not see that pattern that that pattern is of some significance can you can you emphasize what you're meaning there for listeners yeah, absolutely. So we uh, spend a lot of time looking at blood tests, and we have uh, various ways of thinking about individual test results that are maybe slightly different from from a traditional a, a traditional approach. So a traditional approach is that there is a normal range for a blood test, and that normal range is developed by taking a certain number of people it's usually a few thousand uh, those people who are doing this test and then you create uh, a bell curve from that data so the mean uh, which is the average plus or minus two standard deviations which covers 95 percent of the people who did that test um and you know that's all well and good except for the fact that most of the blood tests that you're taking were taken by more average people and i don't mean average in a bad way i just mean you know just everybody around you and a lot of those people are having those blood tests done because there's something wrong with them or they're sick they're seeing the doctor that's why they're having a blood test done and it's worth bearing in mind that uh in the us and the uk is certainly catching up um the majority of adults so more than 50 percent uh take at least one medication um, have at least one chronic disease uh, and or at least some flavor of uh, chronic metabolic issues, say prediabetes or worse. So the average person is sick. Um, and do you then want to compare your own data to a bell curve that was generated in people who on average are not healthy? And the answer is no, you don't. We have developed our own ranges based on published uh, data in terms of, you know, if your this marker goes uh, above or below uh, this certain range, mortality starts to increase, disease risk starts to increase. And so we can base it on actual, you know, published data rather than just the average of the people that that you're um, that did the test at the lab that, that you're doing it at. Um, and then, you know, there are certainly uh, various ways that you can look for patterns. So um, how uh, how 
markers interact uh, ratios of certain markers that's certainly very popular in in the lipid and cardiovascular disease uh, literature um but when you're looking at so so we use uh close to 40 different markers and again it's stuff that's very easy to get from your doctor so um a full blood count with a differential so your red blood cells white blood cells uh your basic lipids you know cholesterol triglycerides some liver function and kidney function tests and your blood glucose that's just, that's essentially it you know um and when you then look at 10 or 15 or 20 of those markers and the way that they move and cluster together that might tell you something about your predicted age but there's no way that any human can can hold all of those patterns in their head and or would even see those patterns just looking at that i think data. that's of great significance yeah, yeah. tommy like you just say it's sort of blage sort of thing but that's of huge significance it's like hey let's stop and look at this this is major yeah and and, and i think this is where um you know the, the i mean this is why data science and artificial intelligence machine learning uh in uh healthcare is you know this is where the field is exploding because there are just things we have so much data and there are just things in that data that the average human uh, or this you know even a by a well trained and intelligent biostatistician are just never going to be able but, to find. But the big issue you've got is the healthcare today is based on the paradigm of, hey, we get sick first, then we get treated. So it's, why are we not using the, the data science to predict, to prevent, and to optimize instead? I mean, it can enable that new paradigm. I mean, you, you, I just get a bit upset when you're, we're only using AI for um, disease care. Oh, I completely agree. The the main problem, if you want to call it a problem, stems from the fact that uh, where most of the money and research is focused and where clinicians are focused, you know, people who work in the healthcare system uh, are focused on improving uh, the quality of the care that they are currently providing. And that is also where a lot of the data comes from. You know, where are people getting blood tests done? Where are people getting uh, various uh, genetic tests done or um, image, you know, imaging, MRI scans? You know, these people are, are having them done because there is something wrong with them. You know, they are currently sick. So the majority of the data, um, except for, you know, longitudinal tracking data done in the population on average and, and, and many governments are doing that as big data sets in south korea there's some in the uk there's some in the us um you know which sort of just tracks the population on average most of the data is coming from healthcare so therefore you're going to get um a skew of people looking at that because the the power is in the data and and the problem is that we just currently um the data on optimizers people who are trying to optimize their health is siloed um by each individual practitioner who is working with a small group of people to optimize their health and that data you know isn't being collected so that so that it can be analyzed um in a group and by practitioner you're meaning a functional medicine doctor well yes yes and no i like who uh, else is working and optimizing uh, people well uh I mean, m many people. The like the, the biohacker the, community, uh, or like Nourish Balance yeah. Thrive is a bit of an outlier. Would you not agree? Yeah, uh, uh, we are. Um, and the, the the main reason I I, I balk slightly at the, at the at the use of the word functional medicine is just because I I think it's terrible branding. Um, uh, there there is you know a, a great number of people working in the functional medicine community. That's what they call themselves. I the 
the problem with functional medicine is that if you work in traditional, if, if you want to call it, or allopathic medicine, whatever whatever you want to call it, um, the word functional is usually um, used to describe a process that either um, isn't well described or isn't well understood or is a diagnosis of exclusion or you think the patient is making it up. So functional is just the wrong word okay. to use. Um, the and so, like that's just like my own personal bone to pick with with the word uh, functional medicine. But you, you're right that 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 is an area where a lot of people are are working on this. And but there are also, you know, a number of uh, self taught health coaches, the biohackers, people who are doing this for themselves, um, and you know, doing it doing it in 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 groups. There's you know people who follow the sort of the the bulletproof uh, uh, approach, which again. Uh, not necessarily the best way to do it, but you know there there are these huge groups of uh, online communities and and, and practice. Yeah, I'm excited you phrase it that way, stuff. Tommy, because that's why I note one of the things I noticed first was you know say people doing bulletproof, uh, quantified self, etc. And I I couldn't help but notice this was more like the sort of typewriter phase of word processing. It hadn't sort of progressed. It was these silos, as you called it. It hadn't progressed into the hardware itself and became sort of democratized. Yeah, and that's you know the 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 democratization of this process, giving access um, to anybody who wants it, and then also getting the data so that we can do something useful with it is something that we're very interested in, in doing and. Um, the, whenever I, whenever I work with, uh, people who worked in the, in the software industry, um, they're amazed that, you know, the healthcare data is so siloed and so protected and nobody wants to share it because, you know, that's just not the way things are approached. Very poor from computer science or engineering. And that's how, why I end up speaking with Ivor Cummins or it's actually how I came across Chris Kelly and which is how I came across you v- from listening to Chris Kelly. Uh, he was coming from the computer science angle, which matched myself. And it, it's an insane industry when you look at healthcare from computer science or an, engi- an engineering perspective. Yeah, absolutely. But just to, to, to come back to, to your original frustrations, I certainly understand them. But we just need to find a way to standardize uh, and collect all these different pockets of data uh, so that we can then apply these methods to um, optimizers uh, or you know people who are trying to do whatever they can to improve their their health span or the, you know their long-term performance rather than rather than relying on data and it's definitely going to happen and I spotted NBT nourish balance thrive as one of uh, one of the sort of few heralding the way yeah I certainly hope so that's that's uh uh, that's that's part of our goal uh, finding finding a way to both do research in this area so that we can show uh, that what we think works does work and then also finding ways to connect people to the resources that they need be it in terms of uh, coaching or interpreting their blood tests uh, and then you know find finding ways to sort of bring together many different uh, areas of, of data so that we can so that we can you know really dig into it tommy we could be here all day because every time you speak there's like another five things it's not like we're closing tabs down here in my mind we're opening tabs up but let me jump to you should see how many tabs i have open at any one given time that's probably uh a a sign of how my brain usually works. excellent so jumping back you had mentioned that without even doing blood testing you could go through a questionnaire of 40 or 50 questions I, i don't know the exact figure and you could determine 
person's health issues in, in some kind of rank. And I happen to know what you're talking about and I, because I found a link, which I don't know if it's publicly available anymore. I mean, it works, but I don't see advertised, but I know what the link is. And I followed, I don't know, you can tell me if it's meant to be publicly available. I followed it. I answered the 50 questions and I was quite surprised at the accuracy of its predictions of what my health issues would be in order to optimize myself. Like, yeah. uh, for example, it listed glucose dysregulation one, which I, I'll explain, which is true. And second, it said uh, circadian rhythm disruption, which is also true because I'm getting exposed to computers every night far, far, far too late and I'm not using blue blockers. So is that link publicly available? And yeah. could you just briefly explain what, what we're talking about here? Absolutely. So this was our, f our first foray into uh, the machine learning world. And this is all based on our own athlete data. So you know, these are people who I believe you would want to compare yourself to. And whenever we had people come in, they did a questionnaire and they often do it multiple times as they work through us. And it's, it's all of that stuff that, that we mentioned earlier. There's some questions on digestion and sleep and, um, uh, yes, yeah, uh, sexual, sexual health and, um, uh, emotional and mental health, all those kinds of things. And yeah, it's 51 questions ranked on a, a scale of one to five. And, so all of our athletes did that. And at the same time, they did a huge number of tests. So they did very extensive blood testing. They did a Dutch test to look at cortisol and hormones. They did uh, organic acids tests, which kind of look at some uh, microbial stuff that's going on in the gut. Also, you know, give you a, a slight picture of metabolic health, maybe what's happening uh, inside your cells. And they also did uh, multiple stool tests to look at what's going on in their gut. And then, you know, if you have the... The, the questionnaire data and you have all this uh, objective data looking at pretty much every fluid we could get our hands on uh, then you can the the machine picks up um, patterns in in the in the answers from the subjective questions that then we can use to predict uh, some of those uh, things that you'd see on what are essentially quite expensive tests you know it's just but the the, the data that we used to the, the data that we used to generate uh, on every person who came to us was essentially several thousand dollars of um, uh, mass spectrometry um, whereas now because we can predict a lot of the stuff we can we can uh, we can usually start um, start smaller and, and predict a lot of what we might want to tell me again you just casually state something which is of huge significance you just kind of walk past that one <laughs> I do have to pause you and ask you yeah, to sort of elaborate that for nobody for people who are listening who just um, are not aware of what you're actually meaning there that hey we can actually with a low cost, predict what could be wrong with you or what you might want to test more with simple tests. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that so this is this is a, a, a big part of a big part of our goal or my or my goal. Um, and coming from the UK, I believe in socialized healthcare. I believe in socialized medicine. I you know, I think that everybody should have access to this. Um, and it shouldn't be uh, shouldn't be behind some kind of insurance or, or paywall. Um, but at some point like you, know, you have to collect the data and that data is expensive to collect and you know there, there are always going to be um those 
those first people, those pioneers that that helped to do that, and that's essentially what a lot of our clients have, have done. And so, so this is this is um, freely available. It's called our, called our Elite Performance Analysis Tool. If you go to the Nourish Balance Thrive website, it will ask you if you want to do the seven minute analysis. There's a button, and this is essentially the tool that anybody can get access to it. And the the interesting thing is that you, that you mention uh, blood glucose dysregulation and you mention circadian rhythm disruption, and then all of a sudden, I'm wondering, ah, oh, maybe when the, the when the algorithm says that you're blood tests look older than you actually are yeah i actually wondered and i can actually uh, yeah i do and i can actually briefly just say what uh about the the glucose dysregulation i well i'll take recently a previous guest of mine joseph antoine um influenced me such that i took a a five-day water fast it ended on a friday i then pricked my finger on sunday and it was 6.3 in, in, in European units. And I was like, oh, bejesus. I was cooking dinner at the time. I stopped cooking. I was like scared stiff. And I went running for 45 minutes. I came back, pricked my finger again. It hadn't changed. It was like, no, this is impossible. I checked the next morning. It hadn't changed. I went to hard cardiovascular training for 90 minutes. It didn't change. It was maybe 6.2. Mm-hmm. In the afternoon, it was the same. When I ate, it went up to, say, 6.9, but within an hour, it was back at that 6.3. I assumed the meter was broken, uh, an AccuCheck. I went and bought, bought another one. It said the same. So after a few days of uh, panic, I... Uh, I went, I did a bit of studying, I went and got insulin tested, and I came to the conclusion it's something termed physiological insulin resistance. And it appears that my muscles had started to spare glucose, which I believe is an evolutionary adaptation. So once I saw that the triglycerides were low, uh, there was no other signs of metabolic ill health that I could see easily. Insulin was low, nice and low, but the glucose was high. I mean, you'd be kind of pre-diabetic at that point. So I just concluded, hey, I feel well. The insulin is low. So that could be the glucose dysregulation that it's picking up upon, which may be adding to my biological age perception. Yeah, and um, I'm sure it is because uh, if – you're fasting. Uh, if your fasting glucose is elevated, that's quite a that's quite a strong um, that's quite a strong input into the algorithm in terms of predicted age. And it's uh, the if if we try and extract like a, an optimal range from the algorithm, you know, if we're trying to predict um, uh, where so like the inflection point, where above which point does uh, your fasting blood glucose dramatically increase your your um, predicted age it's around uh, 90 milligrams per deciliter um uh divide by 18 to get it in millimoles um it's you know it's somewhere under five somewhere between 4.5 and five and when you know you look at the when you look at the published data you actually see the same thing you see a dramatic increase in mortality once you go above around that point and then you know once you go up from there actually mortality doesn't increase that much even if blood sugar goes up even higher so um the you know most of most of the uh most of the damage is done once you go above that point now if people are low carb or keto 
they may have elevated fasting blood glucose because they have an um, an exacerbated dawn phenomenon. But that will te- that will often be the the highest uh, blood glucose of the day, and it will then come down during the day. So, does that in itself matter? To be honest, we we don't really know. However, um, when uh, I, I think about spending very long periods of time fasting or low carb or keto, if your uh, fasting blood glucose starts to creep up, I don't always just tell myself it's physiological in- insulin resistance and, and not to worry about it. I think there's there's um, there's there's going to be some benefit pretty much in in anybody in, in keeping their blood glucose uh, essentially below below ninety below. Uh, Even if insulin is low, like for fasting, and then yes, yeah, because glucose in itself is 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 causing issues. It 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 glycosylates proteins. It will affect um, your circulating um, uh, LDL, which may then increase its risk of being oxidized, which could accelerate. Yes, uh, I have been showing more oxidized LDL. Glucose itself. Yeah, so glucose it's glucose itself um, is is issue. So so we 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 like to focus on on insulin, and maybe we can talk about that some more. But insulin itself is not necessarily the problem. It's the the upstream um, issues that are then causing the body uh, to produce more insulin. And yes, the insulin itself can cause issues. But you know, if even if you're keeping insulin low, if if you're um, chronic if you have chronically elevated blood glucose for whatever reason um you i don't think you can just tell yourself well Well, i appreciate that and talking of that for years anytime you or or chris have mentioned an optimal range for any biomarker i've snipped it and saved it but i was wondering you know you might mention a blog or Uh podcast and i've been collecting them over time so I have a, a good idea what optimal ranges are instead of the lab ones, which, as you said, are an average of sick people. And I was wondering, does Nourish Balance Thrive publish that? Yeah, so all of them are available uh, through our blood calculator. And that is is currently behind a paywall of sorts. You have to become a, a member to use it. And you know, we we people we we have people who frequently you know if they're interested in uh, optimizing their health they'll show up um, briefly pay for a membership so they can use a calculator and then and then cancel the membership again and you know that that that's fine we're very happy for people to access it in whatever way they want um, and then as soon as you run some blood tests through the calculator um, every test that you run that we have an optimal range for you just see the optimal range right there on the on the uh, on the screen. So if you've run your blood test through the calculator, the optimal ranges are in there, and you are free to use them however you like. And if you're if you're happy to share your blood test results, you can share those, and then the optimal ranges are on there. And uh, if you look at uh, for anybody can access the references that we use to make uh, the blood calculator calculator ranges. They're freely available on the website, and then you can go and dig around in those in those references and decide if we've if we've picked the right if we've picked the right ranges. Um, and in health and wellness, there's just one more thing in my mind here. In in the health and wellness space, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of companies selling a lot of products for wellness, be it microbiome or genetic testing. And although it sounds fancy, and I think has a relatively high cost, I've noticed that most people would benefit through simple blood chemistry. And blood, simple blood chemistry is really cheap. And then that really made me, although I haven't met Chris, build a sort of repertoire, uh, a real uh, connection with Nourish Balance Thrive um, intellectually, because Chris got very excited about Brian Walsh, 
who I has helped, uh, I understand, tremendously behind Blood Calculator. And bloodcalculator.com, yeah. it takes in, I think it's like 39 biomarkers that are fairly cheap to obtain. I think it's like 65 US dollars. And I know here in Europe I paid, I don't know, it was like 50 euros to get the, 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 the biomarkers. So it's pretty cheap. And so do you have any views on this sort of expansion that you keep seeing into ever more um, purported benefits of, say, microbiome or, say, genomics that actually don't offer as much value as what blood chemistry can offer? Absolutely. Uh, so we're at a point still where phenotype, which is you know, your physiology, is much more important in terms of figuring out what you should do to optimize your diet and lifestyle than, say, genotype, which is measuring your, your genetics. And yes, the, so there's a, there's a lot that, that is available. Um, we often look at the gut. Uh, a lot of the people who come and work with us have gut issues. Uh, however, we're generally look, looking for pathogens or things that are in there and you know almost certainly causing issues which we then treat um if you're looking at the patterns of the of the microbiota in general there's actually not as much uh, that we know in terms of how to intervene or change that or how those things are actually affecting physiology as some people would like to suggest so there are there are certainly a lot of companies and it's actually it's actually pr it's actually very clever of them what what they've done is they have some stool testing uh, software some stool st stool testing uh, technology and they get you to do to give a stool sample and at the same time they get you to answer a whole load of questions about yourself subjective questions which i've already told you can be very good at predicting health issues and then they also maybe get you to do some kind of metabolic test maybe they get you to do uh, an oral glucose tolerance test so they can tell you whether you're you know insulin resistance or insulin resistant or what your metabolic health is like and then what you're essentially doing uh they they're selling you a stool test but what they are doing is collecting data on your uh subjective quality of life uh your lifestyle habits and your metabolic health and then they're going to try and mine that data to look for correlations so up front they're telling you that their st the, your stool test is going to tell you some information about your health whereas what you're actually doing is paying for them to collect the data to then find something interesting so there may well be something that comes out of that but up front you are just providing them the data uh, to do something later on rather than doing anything that's going to be particularly useful to your own health at that moment in time and most um most of these testing companies uh, that's the stage that they're at and when you look at genetics you know the, there are many different ways i've done it myself you do your 23 and me and then you run it through various companies and you get your uh nutrigenomics say you know that's that's something that's very hot at the moment is how do you alter your diet based on your genetics and uh the answer is we don't know uh but people will give you plenty of ideas as to what you might want to do uh but how many studies have actually tested whether you respond to a certain nutrient or lifestyle intervention based on genetics pretty much none um, and those studies that have looked at it have shown that the genetics really don't matter that much then there's also some some published data where they've looked at uh commercial genetic testing and compared 
their answers in terms of single nucleotide polymorphism SNPs compared that to, you know, a, a more rigorous testing in a lab. And, you know, there's a lot of false positives. There's a lot of false negatives. You know, those these commercial tests aren't necessarily that reliable. So there's, there's a load of really inf- interesting information. I'm really excited about where the future of genetics and uh, microbiome testing will go. But at the moment, um, there are tests that we know that we understand very well. We we know the errors. We know what they mean. We know the long term outcome. You know there are there are studies where um, you can see if people if the if their tests look like this. You know this is what their disease risk is. You know 10, 20 years down the line, and that's blood testing. Um, and so for for the foreseeable future, I think that we should continue to focus on blood tests because we understand them so much better than all these other tests. And those you know I, I'm. I like I said, I'm excited about where some of this more advanced testing can go. But right now, you should look at your phenotype. You should understand your own physiology and you know some basic blood tests. Yeah, and not only is uh, blood tests cheap because it's uh, it's ubiquitous, but it also hasn't been mined as you mentioned earlier. Yeah, because they want uh, people want to use the the fancy data processing uh, on fancy data, whereas you know blood testers blood tests are old hat, so people. You know, haven't extracted them for for all the, the yeah. So you you you've covered that very nicely. That notion that testing for the perfect diet for you using nutrigenomics is rubbish, and probably also microbiome testing for yeah. the ideal diet is most likely rubbish still at this point. Yeah, there's there's uh, there's some people who. Uh, are probably closer than others. So the guys uh, at day two, um, that's their, that's the testing company. They're looking at the, the micro, uh, gut microbiota and they have a lot of data where, so that I think they took a thousand individuals and then they gave them continuous blood glucose monitors and they tracked their diet and saw what, you know, you know, how their blood glucose responded to various foods. And then they gave them tailored diets based on, you know, minimizing blood glucose excursions. And it, obviously, it was very variable from person to person. And then they correlated that with the gut microbiota. And that, that, um, that test is now commercially available. So they, they, they went through the process of academically collecting a huge amount of data. So that then... Yeah, day, day two is an excellent company. And it's very nice work to correlate uh, glucose spikes with uh, your microbiome. And actually, I plan to put them on my invite list in the show, Tommy. Yeah, that's that's great. I th- so I, I think you know, like I said, there's 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 huge potential there. We're just not there yet. Uh, but if if anybody's close, I, th- I think. Hey, Tommy, let me jump on a bit. Simply, do you think the healthcare we have today does a bad job of prevention and prediction? <laughs> yeah, this. Uh, I guess it's a it's a bit of a loaded question, right? Because obviously the, the answer is kind of in there and. Um, in terms of disease prevention, if you're talking about chronic... Would you say most chronic disease is a metabolic disease? Yes. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're almost... So in the majority of disease today is chronic? Yes. Um, well, yeah, and 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 or uh, has some metabolic underpinnings. And so in terms of preventing those, uh, I mean, modern healthcare d- doesn't do a great job. But it's worth bearing in mind that um, previously, disease prevention was things like... Uh, um, infectious disease. Absolutely, and- 20th century was a public health uh, uh, success. And so, do you see? Maybe it's another loaded question, Tommy. Do you see? <laughs> you're making me laugh here. Do you see, do you see healthcare 
changing from today's sickness model of disease care to one I've coined healthcare for healthy people. You know, one that is predictive, preventative, aims at optimizing health. Like, can you seriously tell me that you you see that system changing to that paradigm? Or would you more align with my view that a secondary healthcare is underway, emerging from computer science? It's it's computer science moving towards health and wellness, it's or data science moving towards health and wellness. And it's secondary, it's consumer-driven, it's data-driven, it's not institutionalized, it's networked and sensor-laden. Uh, yeah, yes and yes and no. Um, so absolutely yes for the kind of people listening to this podcast, the kind of people that we, you know, are uh, full time clients at Nourish Balance Thrive. Um, that kind of uh, ground up self quantification um, approach is 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 going to become, I think, increasingly popular, particularly as data becomes easier to measure. You know, your Aura Ring and your Apple Watch. Um, you know, and you can, you're kind of uh, digital phenotyping, they call it. So you're basically collecting data about yourself without really having to think about it. And then, you know, somebody can, can figure out how that then should uh, be integrated into, into your, into your lifestyle approaches. And, you know, I think that's going to become increasingly common. However, I also believe that most people don't need that. Uh, The the most um, chronic disease is a function or a result of the environment that we've built around ourselves. Um, So if we can help people to modify their environment themselves, I don't really think that that needs much uh, data. I don't think it needs uh, really intensive technology. Um, Most of what I would recommend uh, very much comes from an ancestral kind of approach, and it can be done without any healthcare, doesn't need doctors, doesn't need hospitals, doesn't necessarily need that. You're meaning maybe don't eat 24 hours a day. Are you suggesting something ridiculous, like don't eat as soon as you wake up? Yeah, something ridiculous like eat food that's actual food, uh, get some sleep, uh, spend some time moving, spend some time with loved ones. Like for the majority of people, if they did just that, you know, we'd save billions if not trillions eventually of, of dollars and pounds and euros on, on healthcare. And, and that, that doesn't, that doesn't require intensive data. It doesn't require anything complicated. Um, so, so yes, I mean, I'm, I'm really into advanced technologies. I'm really into, uh, 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 understanding data, um, predictive models, all that kind of stuff. But there's just this part of me that comes back to the fact that if we could each, just modifier them. Can you give a uh, quick introduction to uh, modifying environment? First of all, you're including diet and nutrition in that. But what else are you including? Because, for example, I won't wash my clothes in uh, commercial soap. Don't use fluorided toothpaste. I, you know, the list goes on. I, I store food in glass. It's this type of modification you're meaning. Yeah, absolutely, and all of that becomes uh, becomes important in, in in various different in various different areas. So, so the the exposures uh, that, that we have on a daily basis that's something that we you know again that we try and predict with with the calculator. Some of the more, more common common things, but equally, you know, there's 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 a I think a common sense uh, approach to this that, that can be taken. So, so food, um, like you like um, you mentioned, it's we can people love to argue about macronutrients and whether we should be eating animals or plants um i think for most people it doesn't really matter that much as long as you're just actually eat consuming food in a way that your body is used to seeing it so industrial processing essentially divests 
the uh, the macronutrients and the calories from the hormonal responses uh, that we have to them. That that was very succinct, Tommy. That was very elegant. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. So so basically, as long as you're not doing that, you know, you you've probably done for you know. Again, we're talking about the Pareto principle. You know, the the twenty percent that gets you the eighty percent, and that's probably all you need to do for food. Uh, then uh, filtering your water is that only in America or is that in uh, continental Europe? I would so I, I think it's worse in America. I would probably do it um, anywhere. So the there's you know particularly to so say if you're you're in Britain, there's still um, going to be pipes that are uh, breaking down leaching iron or lead. Um, and the, you know there's a really nice paper that came out in the US that looked at lead exposure uh, from largely from municipal water, and you know it's with obviously within you know in most places it's within the the amounts that the the government says uh, you know are okay uh, but that lead exposure uh, accounts for or by their calculations accounted for about uh, a third of is- ischemic heart disease and uh, it was something like 20% i'm using a charcoal filter is that good enough or do i need the more expensive reverse osmosis a charcoal filter that's been uh, so the 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 commercial filters will tell you whether they're filtering what what they're filtering out um, in in what uh, quantities. A charcoal filter should reduce uh, the lead content. Uh, you should be able to get uh, the you should be able to get data from the company that's that's made your water filter. So uh, the average Brita water filter say does not filter out lead, but they do have filters for lead, and then they'll tell you how how well they work. I personally use a reverse osmosis. Uh, I have a, a, a countertop reverse osmosis system, but the, again, the important thing is reducing overall exposures without, you know, completely going crazy about it. So the majority of the water I drink is reverse osmosis filtered by myself at home. If I then have tap water somewhere else because I, I'm thirsty and I need some water and that's all that's available, I don't worry about it because it's you know this is a, a total exposure thing rather than like a trying to get rid of everything because that then you you can drive yourself crazy trying to do that as well so uh water uh, uh, uh i guess then uh orga- organic food uh may uh be be more beneficial particularly there are certain pesti- pesticides that some people don't don't respond well to then all the other things that you talked about so storing food in glass rather than in plastic yeah minimizing uh the the number of cosmetics that you use phthalates and, and and parabens and stuff and and that that's actually something that we see fairly frequently um you know if we look at we used to do some more advanced uh testing that calculator was claiming i'm using antibacterial hand washes yeah so uh now there's there's two parts to that um so uh, just to just to finish my thought it's that um that's often the impetus that people need to then go through their personal care products and think oh yeah well, actually you know maybe i sh- shouldn't be using that and i think that that's that's generally a good thing um so there's two parts of it one is uh some of the predictions look very similar so there, there may be something else that looks a lot like a an antibacterial hand wash in terms of the phenotype uh, and then you get both predicted at the same time that's something that we're actively working on uh, the other thing could be that um, you were previously uh, exposed or again exposed to something that causes a similar phenotype so so we can't predict everything so there are going to be many things that you're exposed to that cause your blood test to look like you've been exposed to something that the calculator has seen before so there's some overlapping predictions there may be something else that looks like and uh, you know on your blood test that looks like antibacterial hand soap so you know that's just kind of part of uh, the the deal of um 
machine learning is that the algorithm can only predict stuff that it's seen previously, um, and that those are a finite number of things uh, currently. So there's always going to be a bit of a um, detective work based on um, uh, outputs of stuff like that. So so when when you do a test, uh, or any test, any diagnostic test, um, there's going to be false positives and false negatives. And that gives you the, uh, the sensitivity and specificity of a test, of which all the predictions that we have on the calculator, those are available on the website. You can see what the sensitivity and specificity are. Um, but you know what you need then is a, a pretest probability. Uh, so you know what's the likelihood that I have been exposed to antibacterial hand wash such that it will affect my um, blood tests. If you know that that likelihood is very very low, then when you know your pretest probability is low, then when you get that outcome, you can be fairly you can be fairly certain that that's maybe not an issue for you. So you know we give you all this data, but it still requires some. Um, some some thinking through it requires uh, cortical input from the user and is that model continuously learning i've never heard chris or yourself state that anywhere and it might be obvious that it is chris only speaks that he had i don't know it was a thousand people he kept a few hundred behind to check the model after but he's never i've never heard it said that this model is continuously learning yeah. So uh, for the for the uh, subjective questionnaire data that we talked about earlier, uh, that's a uh, thousand of our own athletes uh, for the blood test. But it's always increasing, and you're always yeah, checking the the model. Tens of thousands. It's so uh, yes and no because what um, you know as we get new uh, silos of data, which is happening, then the model is retrained or the models are retrained. When we get some so we are on the side collecting people who have um, all the input markers and have say tested a certain um, certain outcome. So if, say if we predict elevated mercury and they've done a, a quicksilver mercury mercury tri test to see whether they do actually have elevated mercury, then we can feed that back into the model. So the the continuously learning part that it's it's not doesn't happen automatically but as we have uh robust sets of data to add back in then they get retrained okay appreciate it and for your interest i did bloodcalculator.com i also went through this like the top five uh, and then i double checked it by asking my girlfriend to do it and just to give you an example so for me it listed cryptosporidii i mean up there in the top three and i did have crypto from 15 odd years ago caught from a, a public swimming pool so i found i thought hmm, i'm a bit come on it was so long ago how how is that possible then i had my girlfriend do it and it listed high like in top five again or top three that she'd been exposed to uh, wood paint to type you you, you put on fences and it just so happens you spent the summer helping her grandmother repaint a wooden fence so how mm-hmm. does it did, how, how, how does it come up with that pattern for something that occurred uh, almost two decades ago? So so again, it, it comes back to what, what these patterns look like. So um, cryptosporidium, and so the, the, the predictions on the calculator are based on having positive antibodies to a certain infection. So that's, that's where the, the test data comes from. So um, it's possible that uh, a previous infection leaves uh, a lasting signature 
in the blood test data. You know, that's one option. The other option is that there are other infections or other things that you're exposed to that look like cryptosporidium in terms of the the um, pattern that they produce. And then you have one of those, uh, but the algorithm knows cryptosporidium, so that's what gets predicted. So it's it, uh, those are both possibilities. Um, it's also perfectly possible that you've picked up crypto again, uh, if you haven't ruled that out. <laughs> oh, so, I think so you know when are, you have it, let me tell you that. Yeah, well, it, I guess it, it sort of depends on what your um, what your normal state of digestion is. Um, that's one of the things that we pick up uh, fairly frequently, and you know, people um, are often kind of like, "Oh, yeah, you know, I get a bit bloated, and I, you know, I have some gut issues." And yeah, so so you may have been affected very severely, uh, but it's something that we see when people kind of, you know, they're like, "Oh, you know, I have this kind of meal," and yeah, I don't really feel very good, or I get a little bit of diarrhea, and I I don't really worry about it because they think that that's normal. So. It, it kind of it, it does kind of depend, but it, there could be something else that looks like uh, crypto, and it's the same for it's the same for other environmental exposures, right? So, you know, maybe uh, there's still some stuff hanging around from from when your girlfriend was was uh, painting these fences, or um, you know, maybe there's something else that that looks like that on on blood tests. So again, it's a uh, what's what's likely what's happened it's it, this it's not a it's not a diagnostic tool it's to help you figure out where you might want to look um in terms of then improving improving your your long-term health so it's, so it allows you to really narrow stuff down with a huge amount of data that you didn't have access to previously but you know it still requires a little does still require a bit of detective work on your part we're working on making the detective work that you have to do um much less because we want it to be a, a really useful tool that anybody. Do you uses. think you're um, democratizing functional medicine, even though you hate the term? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So uh, uh, absolutely, that's that's uh, that's a big part of of what what we want to do, and we we the the calculator focuses uh, or is is pitched mainly at practitioners actually. So so people. Um, and it could could be anybody. It could be a functional medicine practitioner, you know, or an MD or a, or somebody else who's who's you know formally trained who, who's using this or it could be you know health coaches who want to uh or personal trainers who want to provide a, a a bit more input into their into their clients diets and lifestyles than than they were able to do previously so and and i think that uh, that process is the democratization of, of healthcare you know giving people access to this information as cheaply and easily as possible um you know at, at the moment it requires still requires some knowledge of the nuances of how the test works and how blood tests work. Um, but, you know, maybe eventually we'll get to a point where anybody can do this and it's pretty foolproof and it will give you the the top three or four things that you can do to, to improve your health. But again, uh, like I said, the, the other side of that is that I could probably tell you what most people need to do to improve their health. The question is whether I can get them to actually do it. Appreciate it. I see the time here, Tommy. Just a couple more questions, if I may. So... Jumping back to the issue that health is not, um, healthcare today views health as binary, sick or not sick. And you at Nourish Balance Thrive have a lot of uh, individuals who would be classified as healthy. Can you give any insight into what issues you're seeing in uh, people who are um, allegedly healthy? That's people who are not manifesting uh, outward symptoms. What I want to do is make the point that Probably half the population is not healthy, even if they would be classified as healthy. I give an example of what we're meaning by optimization and the fact that health there is, there is no such thing as a healthy person. It's a spectrum. Yeah, th this is um, there's this interesting thing 
um, that, that's kind of going on again in the in the in the functional medicine space. If we're going to keep using that term, and, and I understand why people use it because everybody uses it. Um, it's that sort of <clears throat> people know. Can we use any other term? I wonder. Yeah. So uh, <clears throat> there was a time when uh, we were using the term sustained health engineering, uh, but it's a bit of a mouthful. But it kind of does what it what I what I want it to do. Um, you know, because it's uh, it's not really it's not really medicine. Um, it involves a system based and root cause approach. So therefore, it's more like engineering. Um, and the idea is to sustain health rather than um, you know treat disease. So that that was our term. If somebody can think of something that's a little bit more concise, I'd love to hear it because I I think uh, I think functional medicine does need to, but in my mind it needs to be rebranded uh, just because the 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 terminology is always going to be at odds at what's happening in in a more traditional um healthcare. Um so so yeah there's 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 a there's a, a problem in that, you know, more testing and uh you know means that we can potentially start to say that everybody's sick or there's something wrong with everybody and and I, there is uh some pushback from that so the, so then there are other there are other people in in the space who are sort of rallying against um all the extra they're worried well tommy because they're, they're yeah so it's, it, that's exactly it it's the they um they these people worry about creating more uh, of the worried well and I, and I do worry about that too but equally you know i think that there's a lot of stuff that we know and we and we and we are increasingly seeing from the data that I don't want to then uh, normalize sickness, and and that's I think there's there's some people in the in the functional medicine space that are almost normalizing sickness because they're too worried about creating the worried well. So it's a fine balance. Don't 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 get me wrong. But uh, things that that we're seeing, and, and I think this is this is generally uh, what's kind of happened is that people don't know what it is to feel good. Um, you know, like you're, you're constantly, you know, people talk about dips in blood sugar. That's why, you, you know, you feel tired in the afternoon and that's why you need to eat all the time. And, you know, like, like I mentioned earlier in terms of uh, digestion, you know, like, oh, you know, everybody gets a bit bloated or a bit constipated or a bit, you know, a bit of diarrhea from time to time, you know, that's just, that's just normal. Um, and so we've, we've kind of lowered the bar in terms of what normal feels like. And you don't really realize that until you actually feel really good and that's something that we notice um in a lot of the people that we work with and the, and the interesting si side of that is that as you start to feel better then your normal becomes you know becomes much better then then often it's very hard to look back and think oh, oh yeah i didn't really feel good before because you sort of like your normal is is slowly changing so finding ways to quantify that improvement is is, is kind of important as well that you know blood tests are part of that people who gravitate to work with us uh, tend to have a lot of gut uh, issues that's something we but that's a, a population at large would you not say it's not just the people who work with mbt right yeah absolutely but in this is something that is happening in the population at large who would otherwise think that yeah now when you, can you elaborate on gut issues eg parasites and other things you're seeing in this population typically just to give an idea because uh, yeah, so most people seem to think they're healthy but they might a lot of the population for example is SIBO. Yeah, and uh, th that you know it, in itself requires a, uh, a, a diagnostic process and then some treatment, and it's becoming a, a recognised thing in the gastroenterology community, which which I think is important. Uh, SIBO is, um, but we we see a lot of people, you know, and uh, again, it's it's kind of a it's a function of a what's happening in the in the general population, but then also what's happening in the people that that, that 
work with us and you know many of them are athletes or you know compete in some kind of sport or train regularly you know they don't need to be elite level but you know many of them have that kind of aspect of, the, of their lifestyle and um so there's uh, a number of parasitic infections we you know we see a lot of people who do say ob- obstacle course racing and when you spend your weekends crawling through mud on farms you know a lot of, a lot of stuff crops up and you know that's not really surprising um uh, issues with uh um, H. pylori uh, are very common. Again, also very popular, um, common in the population at large. And it's not necessarily that we need to eradicate it, but when it sort of um, becomes, you know, sort of overtakes that niche, it becomes problematic. Then uh, you mentioned SIBO, so the overgrowth or dysbiosis of, of, of a, a single or small number of, uh, of populations of bacteria, particularly in the in the small bowel. And we certainly see a fair amount of that. Um, and a lot of it is going to come down to some of the, you know, those things we talked about. The, you know, certainly, you know, the gut microbiota is dramatically affected by diet, which then affects the way that the gut then interacts with with the, the gut microbes as well. Um, and then also, you know, the the fostering certain certain bacterial species and the exposures that we have and whether we've properly tuned our immune systems to be able to deal with things. You know, that's, that's a big part of the... The issues with uh, chronic uh, disease nowadays is, you know, you know, if you think about the hygiene hypothesis, are we being exposed to uh, parasites at the right times? Are we being exposed to microbes at the right times? Are we being, exp- you know, are we um, stressing the immune system enough such that it knows what is uh, an external threat versus, you know, uh, self? We call it, you know, so that's that's part of the the formation of uh, autoimmune diseases. We haven't trained the immune system well enough. So all of this then feeds into how your how your gut, um, you know, formulates the the microbiota that are in there, as well as antibiotic exposures, and whether you were born by, you know, uh, a normal vaginal birth or cesarean section, you know, all this stuff kind of comes into play. And then, you know, it's 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 often a case of just figuring out what's best for that individual person in terms of should we be treating something that's in there, should we be altering the diet uh, to control symptoms, or try and you know alter some of the stuff that's going on and it's uh it's often uh, a pretty tricky path you know if, if people have had gut issues for a long period of time it often becomes about you know longer term symptom control and just making sure that you know you feel as good as you can do um you know i don't think we know exactly what the ideal gut microbiota should look like just like we don't know what the ideal diet should look like um so you know we're, we're not at a point where we can individually manipulate these things and expect a certain outcome but we we certainly have some good tools in terms of how we can um Im- improve symptoms i can i certainly concur and if we had time i would have elaborated on the point that i've discovered new normals tommy i thought i was doing very well i thought i felt well And maybe another time, another show, I'll be able to elaborate that. But that's really sparked my passion. But one thing uh, that's that's not been emphasized, and I think we should, is uh, you might not take care of environment today, and you might feel okay. But what I've learned, particularly listening to yourself and Chris and functional medicine doctors, is the this illnesses, modern illnesses, diseases tend to show up 5, 10, 20, 30, 40 years away. And you could have, uh, you could have uh, prevented it by cleaning up your environment as you speak of. So we maybe should emphasize that point that even if you feel good today, you're actually chipping away at something that will manifest quite bad in the future, like chronic fatigue or fibromyalgia or arthritis. Yeah, that's that's a really important point. And again, this is something that that we're trying to do our bit uh, to help with is to 
to close some of this loop, right? So the uh, humans are really bad at long-term investments and thinking about the long-term. We want um, rapid return on our investments. We want to see that the things that we are doing are working right away. And, you know, so how often when uh, you start, to, so you, you listen to a podcast and you hear about this fabulous supplement um, that's going to do something in terms of your disease risk, how often do you then take that supplement every day for the rest of your life? You don't. You take it for like a month, um, and then you get bored, and you don't. You know, you don't buy a new bottle, and you know who knows whether it ever did anything. Um, and you know, it's the same thing with, with all of these, you know, lifestyle changes. You know, how do I know that if I Im- improve my diet, you know, am I am I gonna uh, I'm gonna live longer? You know, that in sixty years time, I'm gonna see that benefit. And and the answer is right now, you know, you don't. However. Um, by by building these tools that can you know track these underlying uh, trends or patterns in our uh, blood biochemistry, and we know how they relate to uh, certain disease risks, you know, uh, uh, and then lifespan. Um, you know, are we then able to uh, track the changes that your body is seeing in response to interventions more rapidly? Can we close that loop more rapidly so that you can see, oh yes, this thing that I'm doing is helping me, um, and then therefore I can keep doing it. And now you're describing the future of medicine, Tommy, right? Yeah, and so and this is you know, and 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 again, I I don't think we're there yet, but this is part of what we're trying to do is, you know, we we need to be able to track the things that we're doing to prevent, um. You know, disease in the long term, in the short term, so that we can know that we're we're moving in the right direction, and that's something that's been lacking, and that's you know that's where I think blood testing is going to be, um, you know, a crucial aspect of it because it's um, it's so cheap, so well understood. You know, that this ubiquitous data is there's there's a lot to 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 see in there, and so you know anybody can get a blood test every three months, um, you know, and that, then then you can actually track what you're doing in real time rather than just making some broad scale changes or not making the changes because you because you, you can't see the the difference that it's making in in, in, the, in the short term i can only concur and that's a stark contrast with public health today for chronic disease because it's simply messages like uh, eat healthy whole grains or eat five fruit and veg a day it's kind of a misguided destination and there's no real loop to be closed yeah, and you know when you when you give uh, when you give recommendations like that, you know a lot of it comes from nutritional epidemiology, which is one of the most broken scientific disciplines that exists, and most of the information you get out of it is essentially useless. Um, and so, so then there's the you know, giving people this advice: Are they doing it? Do we know if it's having a long term benefit? And in reality, we we just don't we don't really know. So I, I think I have a, a fairly good idea of what most people could do to to improve their health and their and their health span. Um, but again, you know, where the data becomes useful is the fact that most people um, are unlikely to just make changes in lifestyle and then keep it that way. You know, you need something to to show you that it's working, something to you know to continue to give you the motivation to do it, and then that's where I think the 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 data becomes useful. Last two questions, Tommy, and I'll be brief. Tying into that, what is five things you would recommend most people do to prevent disease and optimize their health? Just in bullet point terms, what are five things? Yeah, so eat real food. Uh, I think we talked about what that encompasses. Uh, hopefully, ho- hopefully that's that's understandable. Uh, take care of your circadian rhythm. Maybe that should have come first. Um, and that has some sub bullet points, which is expose yourself to light when it's light and make sure that it's dark when it's dark. Um, that's... Uh, 
th- those those are both very important. So don't it's sit the computer just, at two a.m. like I do seven nights a week. Yeah, definitely don't do that. That's literally you know that's really one of the worst things that you can do for your health. Um, so so try and avoid that as as much as possible. Uh, beyond that, I think that you should uh, move frequently. I I think. Uh, squats are one of the best things that anybody can do. Squats or deadlifts, pick up something heavy occasionally. Um, and then the rest of the time, just don't be sitting down uh, continuously. Uh, once, you, once you've uh, touched those things, then uh, the, the important factors are going to be um, spend some time uh, with uh, people that you love and the, and you, you enjoy being around. You know, And again, don't do that on the computer. Do that in, in real time. You know, Touch them, play with them. Get a dog. Um, that's that's one of my favorite. That's one of my favorite health hacks is the dog. Um, and then you know, do something that you know, find something in, in life that that has meaning to you. Um, be that your job or or other people or something that very that blue zones. Is. And I hope a cat yeah. is included. Uh, uh, cats are fine. Uh, I grew up with cats, but now I have I have me and my wife have dogs, and um, I must say the the cat doesn't. Um, Make you go outside, uh, wrestle, walk. Um, I hope that not. Kind of stuff that no. So so that, that that's why I like the dog is because it is it's kind of it forces you to forces you to play, uh, forces you to get outside. Um, you know, it forces a decent circadian rhythm. Um, those are, those are many of the things that I enjoy about the dog. So so once you've done that, you're, you're right. It, it it often comes down to. Uh, those things that we talk about um, from 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 the blue zones. Um, it's quite funny. My girlfriend's been wanting a dog, and the reason I told her I didn't want a dog is because it'll wake me up early and it'll keep me sort of uh, going with the the sun cycle. Yeah, exactly. So that's 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 one of the 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 dog uh, goes to sleep when it's dark outside and wakes up when it's light outside. So then, uh, if you have a dog, you're forced to do that, and that's one of the. That's one of the things that um, makes helps me make sure I go to bed at a reasonable hour. Is I know that the dog is going to want to wake up at some time between six and seven. So then yeah, I have to get up. It, that, that's the one we we borrowed a dog in her family, and the dog would wake me at six thirty every day. Final question, yeah. Tommy. Before you started, I looked at the Nourish Balance Thrive website, and you know it's 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 focused on athletes. People yeah. may not get the connection here when I'm touting this company as a signal, as a harbinger of the future of healthcare. So could you maybe elaborate on that before uh, we call it a day here? Absolutely. The, so the company was founded by Chris Kelly uh, and his wife and another uh, doctor, uh, Jamie Kendallweed. And uh, Chris and Jamie met through mountain biking. They were both... Uh, they both had their UCI pro cards, so they were professional level mountain bikers. They didn't make money riding mountain bikes, but they rode at that 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 level. They rode at the elite level. And uh, you know, Chris founded the company because his health fell apart, and then he fixed it through various functional medicine approaches. And then he thought, oh, I can, you know, there must be lots of people like me. Um, and in, initially, a lot of those people were, you know, were like him. They were in, endurance athletes, so it was it was a sort of an athlete focused company. And I do a lot of my work with athletes. Um, and that's you know I, I have an athletic background as well, um, and so that's that's where we that's where we come from, and, and we use a lot of um, athlete focused language because that's a lot of what inf- informs us in terms of what becomes the way the, the way that we work with people. However, that train translates really nicely over to people who just want to perform for as long as possible. And like I said earlier, performance doesn't need to be in a race; uh, it could be. 
uh, in the bedroom, or it could be in the boardroom, um, or it could be you know in the dining room. You know, there's plenty of places where people want to perform and be functional, uh, both cognitively and physically, for as long as possible. And pretty much everything that you can learn from the elite level athlete and keeping them going for as long as possible is then relevant to those people. So we work with a lot of people who just have, you know, performance goals, whatever they may be. Um, and, you know, we've learned a lot from from working and be, working with and being athletes. Uh, but that applies to anybody, A, who has a chronic health condition that they want to try and reverse or anybody who just wants to perform as long as possible. So working at the pointy end of performance, uh, I think there's a lot you can learn. Uh, and those are the lessons that we apply to pretty much anybody who who thinks they might benefit from it. I appreciate it. And I look forward to the, the company updates and the website updating in due course. Just to make the point, Chris was not only just a professional mountain biker, but he was also a programmer at Yahoo. So he's really another computer scientist who's been moving to health. Yeah, so he, he came over to the US. Um, uh, Yahoo funded him, brought him to Silicon Valley. He also worked, uh, spent uh, spent time as a software engineer for Amazon and uh, at a quantitative hedge fund. So, you know, a lot of predictive modeling and stuff like that, which then uh, becomes a big part of of what we do because of his his abilities to, to code and his knowledge in that area. So then that sort of integration between you know, health and wellness and performance, and and the the data science is 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 largely driven by by his uh, his uh, experiences and, and and knowledge. And I think that that's 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 why we we can uh, take the approaches that we do. Well, Tommy, I highly appreciate getting a piece of you today, getting some of your time. Oh. You've been very kind and gracious, and informative. It's been a pleasure. So again, uh, highly appreciate, and I hope that the the good karma comes back round for you. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, uh, this is really great. I, I very much enjoyed it. And like I said, I, I really uh, look forward to listening to, to other episodes. Of the please do. Thank you again, Tommy. Bye. For more information, please see hyperwellbeing.com or follow Twitter at hyperwellbeing.com.